State political science students present In the Shadow of the Kremlin, a podcast covering state building, foreign policy, political economy, and civil society in the wake of the USSR. Welcome back again, podcast pals. <laughs> We're so excited to talk again. This is Rihanna speaking, as you all know. And I'm Noah, your favorite podcaster, <laughs> as you all know. So, Rihanna, what's our topic for today? Well, how do we know that you're the favorite podcaster? Anyway, okay. <laughs> uh, so, Russia has had some relatively new developments in the area of freedom of speech, or lack thereof. Say it isn't so. <laughs> Say it isn't so. Tell me you're the only one. <laughs> All right. Are you going to tell me about it or not? Yes. Yes, I will. And um, so we're going to be talking about freedom of speech within the country and then also um, portraying what, like, freedom to portray Russia outside of the country as well. Okay. So where to begin? So. Technically, since the fall of the Soviet Union, Russia has provided the freedom to express or to say what you wish without consequences. And technically is the word here because it's slowly going down the toilet. A slow flush, if you will. (laughs) That's right. So to get specific, I went to go look at the Russian Constitution. And it talks about freedom of speech in Section 1, Chapter 2, Article 29. There are five points under this article, and I want to read them to you. So number one, everyone shall have the right to freedom of thought and speech. That is pretty clear. Yeah, that's really straightforward. (laughs) Later, we can talk about how this border has been crossed a few times by the Russian government. Yes, we will. And number two, point two is, or I guess article two, Propaganda or campaigning inciting social, racial, national, or religious hatred and strife is impermissible. The propaganda of social, racial, national, religious, or language superiority is forbidden. Now, I purely want to hear about what you have to say about this. Obviously, all of these things are horrendous and terrible, but is the prohibition of this overcrossing the first point? To me, it seems like a great setup for the Kremlin. They can use the Russian constitution to fit whatever narrative they'd really like. They really don't have to worry about major opposition when it comes to social, racial, national, religious, or language superiority because they can just point to the constitution and reach a verdict and how it some way violates the Russian constitution. Then they can be sentenced to hard time or whatever the punishment the Russian judiciary system sees fit. Yeah. I agree. And I mean, because if you already have, well, if you, so if you have the point, everyone should have the right to freedom of thought and speech, but then unless it has social, racial, national, religious, or language um, hatred within it, they can, they can claim that anything you say falls under one of those categories. So it's just kind of undermining the first point, in my opinion. But yeah, so anyway, um, number three, no one may be coerced into expressing one's views and convictions or into renouncing them. This is interesting to me because how would you regulate that? Like, uh, this is a very, <laughs> this is a very, 
low-key example, but it's like a mom saying to a kid, you must like oatmeal raisin cookies. And he says, no, no, mom, I can't stand them. And she says, no, you must eat it till you like it. And then, I mean, she's trying to force him to like the cookie. So then the police comes in, madam, you're under arrest. Okay, that was a really low-key example. But like, how do you how do you regulate somebody forcing someone else to like agree with them? I, I don't know. Well, I'm not sure really where you were going with that, but obviously it would be with a little bit more political stuff. <laughs> this seems a little bit highly high critical in the first place. Hypocritical? Yes, hypocritical in the first place. To be honest, I'm frankly quite confused why this sentence is placed in the Russian constitution, especially after the last thing you just read me. It's probably just there just to make Russia look way more democratic than it actually is. Yeah, true. And uh, for the next one, number four, quote, everyone shall have the right to seek, get, transfer, produce, and disseminate information by any lawful means. The list of information constituting the state secret shall be established by the federal law, unquote. That seems fair. Uh, any thoughts on that one? Yeah, it seems fair. But as we've discussed in this podcast, and hopefully you figured out by now, Russia really doesn't like playing by the rules. <laughs> yeah, and we'll be talking about that more as we go. And number five, my last one. Um, the freedom of the mass media shall be guaranteed. Censorship shall be prohibited. Whoa. This is crazy to me. Um, the government has broken this quite a few times. Goodness. Yeah, that's definitely a point we need to touch on later. Yes, I agree. Well, so now we that we know what's supposed to technically go down in the hemisphere of freedom of speech and expression, let's dive into what's actually happening. Exciting. <laughs> so there are two ways that Russia is overstepping its boundaries. Actually, well, yeah, okay. So um, the first is cracking down on criticisms of the Russian government. And then the second down, like, so if um, Russian people are criticizing the government, Russia has been um, punishing them. And the second way it's overstepping its boundaries is adding restrictions to online expression and social media and being very surveillant. Um, even though in the fifth point in Article 29 says censorship shall be prohibited. Anyway, so let's talk about that first point that I made. So particularly since 2012, Russia has clamped down on its restrictions of speech. What is so specific about 2012? Um, so it was right after the um, it was right after all the mass protests after Putin had won the presidency again. Gotcha. So in this moment, they were protesting and bad talking the government. And essentially, Putin and the Kremlin wanted not really wanting to deal with this. So they started cracking down on it. Yeah. And their protests, like the justification of their protests is a whole nother topic that we can talk about another time. But yes, correct. And so... Um, it has come to the point now where dozens of people have been pressed on criminal charges and gone to jail for posting unpatriotic social media posts, videos, articles, and more. And they're arrested on the charge of extremism. So what are some of the examples of this? That's a good question. 
I have a few examples. My first is of the time frame when the whole skirmish went down with Crimea. To turn a long story into a sentence, Russia was illegally occupying the Republic of Crimea and it caused conflict. And during this time, Russia was propagating itself online and through other sources in order to make it look like she was making the, really, the morally right decision here. While many people in the media outlets were prosecuted for extremism if they used satire against Russia or to make fun of Russia, or if they pointed out Russia's wrongdoings through the media. Again, uh, they would be prosecuted for on the grounds of extremism. To give a few numbers here to put some perspective on how much of a recent increase people have been convicted of this crime, which shouldn't actually be a crime in terms of the Russian constitution. In 2010, there were 30 social media users who were convicted of extremism. But in 2015, that number shot up to 216 people. Dang. So I can think of another very relatable example. Wouldn't the Navalny case fall into this? Oh, yeah. Totally. So um, let me give you a quick rehash of what has happened. So... First, let me say that something significant about the Navalny story is that Russia is moving on from just imprisoning people who are unpatriotic or unsupportive of Putin to truly harming them. In this case with poison, which seems to be historically a Russian favorite. <laughs> yes. So Alexei, Alexei Navalny, I'm butchering his name. I should have figured I think out. it's Alexei, but... Okay. Okay, so Navalny is a 44-year-old Russian man who is now known for his opposition against Putin, particularly on social media. Um, and he has millions of Russian followers on social media, specifically on YouTube. Which is interesting, to say the least, because that means that there were at least millions of people who were opposed to Vladimir Putin in at least some sort of fashion. Yeah. Which is all... So the reason that's interesting is because people have actually been behind Putin for a while now. Anyway, back to Navalny. So this man has been at work since at least 2013, and he has been in prison several times for speaking out against the Kremlin government. What is he speaking out against? Like, what, is he, what does he not like about the Kremlin? He's specifically crying out against the corruption of the government, and specifically Putin and the oligarchic takeover of money and authoritarianism or dictatorship-esque government. So in August of 2020, he was poisoned with Novichok nerve agent, and a lot of things pointed to Putin being behind the poisoning. Well, then in January, he released a video on YouTube, Navalny released a video on YouTube of Putin's palace, which... Uh, again, accused Putin of corruption and mass protests. Sorry, which accused Putin of corruption and then mass protests then broke out across the country. As you can imagine, um, Navalny was arrested, and but now he is said to be spending 2.5 years in a corrective labor colony instead. Okay, that doesn't sound like Soviet times. I don't know it does. Whoa, that's pretty insane. <laughs> Yes, and that technically is an infringement on constitutional rights because he was arrested for a video that he posted on YouTube. 
But remember I said that the Constitution says, quote, everyone shall have the right to seek, get, transfer, produce, and disseminate information by any lawful means. The list of information constituting the state secret shall be established by the federal law, unquote. And using YouTube to um, to post or post a video about Putin's palace is technically a legal means. YouTube is legal in Russia. And the first point is that everyone shall have the right to freedom of thought and speech. Wow. Very quick rundown of Navalny's situation, but it was very informative as well. <laughs> There's a way more to the story, but that could be its own podcast in itself. Um, one more thing that I want to specifically focus, focus on real quick, and that's the social media surveillance. Like I said before, the government is not really allowed, is really not allowed to censor anything. But, you know, of course, they're starting to drift into breaking this. And when the government adheres strictly to... When when does the government adhere strictly to the rules? They just... Very rarely. Um, but just to give a general idea, I won't go into many specifics here. But Russia is slowly starting to censor more and more on the internet. For example, in 2019, they passed a law that all inter internet service providers must download an equipment that allows the government to proxy or survey or just keep an eye over what they're putting online. And if there are websites or ads or really anything that's disliked by the government, it's banned and blocked. So Noah, now that we've talked about Russian freedom of speech domestically, how can Russians control their self-image abroad where they have no authority? So... It all starts with the term near abroad that we've all heard in Russian politics. In case you've forgotten, <laughs> the near abroad is essentially a collection of states that were once Soviet republics. The Kremlin's near abroad social media policy is to use Russian speaking propaganda with other countries that have had a shared post-Soviet experience, kind of like igniting a nostalgia in a way. This messaging is much more positive than Russia's far abroad social media apology. For reference, the far abroad policy is essentially targeting any other country that isn't really a part of the uh, Soviet sphere. So this is because they want the near abroad countries to like them. Exactly, yeah. Okay. In these countries, the far abroad countries, the Kremlin seeks to attack democratic institutions it would seem to be difficult to create a message that would effectively get to the Europeans and sway their opinion. But according to Neil McFarquhar, this is a lot simpler <laughs> than it sounds. And this is what a typical social media attack ad would look like. European government officials are American puppets who are unable to confront terrorism and the immigration crisis. Now, usually when Russia does these things, they have a detailed four-segmented plan with their propaganda. These four categories include our political, financial, social, and then basically conspiracy theory. First part is all about the legitimacy. The Russian social media content will tend to tarnish democratic leaders or institutions who are not favorable of Russian causes. Secondly, Russia focuses on the financial aspect of their messaging. They want to dissuade the citizens of these countries from turning to foreign markets like the United States, for example. 
they really want to get the message across that the failure of capitalist economies should make you think twice about investing in like the US stock market, for example. They are able to do this by perhaps inflaming fears over a country's national debt or attacking an institution such as the Federal Reserve, while simultaneously discrediting Western financial experts and business leaders. Next, Russia likes to target hot button social topics such as police brutality, racial tensions, protests, anti-government standoffs, and alleged government misconduct too. And I quote, this is to undermine the fabric of society. And then finally, we can forget. We can't forget how the Kremlin loves conspiracy theories. The Kremlin will put a lot of conspiracy theories related to the United States that will spark fear. An example could be like there's going to be a looming nuclear fallout between Russia and the United States or the fact that the United States is instituting martial law for some reason. Through these four ways, Russia has been using these tactics through social media to create confusion, confusion, stoke fear, and undermine Western institutions in a way that benefits Russians for policy. This is interesting because uh, like the Russian government is now starting to um, like crack down and sur- surveil, is that? or just keep an eye and block what Russian people are saying, but, and, and they're replacing it with their own message. And that is so undemocratic. Yeah, it really goes against what you were talking about with the Russian constitution. And it's also not just the uh, Russians that are affected by this. It's the near abroad countries like I know Latvia was a big one out of my research. I also saw that Finland was affected by this. And also in the far abroad, it gets a lot more extreme and the message changes too. So that's also something to consider as well. But then it comes to the question, how well has this actually worked both in the near and far abroad? The results are hard to tell, but maybe there are some indicators that can lead us there. There are some indications that are anecdotal, such as the time when Jessica Aro, a Finnish reporter, wrote that aggressive trolls have created a feeling of fear among some of my interviewees, causing them to stop making Russian-related comments online. Then there are other indicators that show that empirical data on this matter. And for uh, our listeners that don't know what Russian trolls are, um, so there's this new, I would say, phenomenon. like occurrence of bots and trolls, which are fake, kind of fake accounts. Um, say like on Instagram, there'll be anonymous people who just have an account. Uh, bots are not actually real people, but trolls are real people. And you can pay these accounts to go put comments on it, on like someone else's page. Or you can also pay bots to go like a post. And so it's very influential in the social media world. Yeah, I'll also be touching a little bit on that topic later in the podcast. Okay, cool.
Okay, as I was saying, for the results, they showed that aside from those who never watch Russian-based broadcaster because they are probably politically apathetic, more frequent consumption of Russian television was associated with a greater tendency to accept the Russian narrative that found a way to blame the United States for the Ukraine conflict. Furthermore, the impact of Russian propaganda in the quote-unquote near abroad really just depends on whether or not you identify as a Russian. The results show that 11% of Russian-speaking Ukrainians ally themselves with the quote-unquote Russia culture tradition. While this may not be working out for the Kremlin Ukraine, obviously 11% is kind of low, <laughs> it might be working at somewhere in Latvia as ethnic Russians located in Latvia are more likely to support Russia's side on the Ukrainian conflict than comparably to what is collectively the West. In Russia's far abroad, they are trying all sorts of tactics to devalue democracy and its institutions. For example, a Russian news agency, I'm probably butchering the name on this, but Russia Sengundia told <laughs> French people with quote-unquote poorly worded questions and statistically an insignificant subsample that the news network that I believe is Russian-owned, RT, used for saying that at least 15% of France supports ISIS. The story started spreading all across French media platforms, and about a week later, the U.S. network that we know of called Vox picked up the story saying how one in six French people now say that they support ISIS. This was obviously not true, but it does show that Russia is using perhaps a cross-pollination technique to influence Russian opinion. Another instance of Russians using a harassment campaign to leverage opinion is when Western foreign policy experts attack the regime of Bashar al-Assad, someone who has aligned themselves with Russian interests who just so happens to be the president of Syria. The response caused Russia to attack Western foreign policy experts with what was described as by my source as organized hordes of trolls. After further investigation, these trolls consisted of dozens of accounts presenting themselves as attractive young women who were surprisingly eager to talk about politics with Americans, especially with some Americans who were working in the national security sector. These accounts just so happen to be linked with the Syrian electronic army who closely ally themselves with Russia and Iran. So basically so some stuff to take out of this is that basically it's some scary stuff that Russians are capable about from even just like sitting at their desk wherever they work far away from us. Gathering pictures of attractive women and using that as a basically a catfish. Yeah, my source called it a honeypot too. Yeah, yeah I, I didn't like that either. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Interesting. This has been a good episode. So we talked about, you know, mainly two things. First is how Russia has started to inhibit um, just the average citizen's freedom of speech. And then how they have been instead replacing it with their own speech and propaganda, especially abroad. You have any last thoughts, Noah? Yeah, I definitely think it's interesting, just like how you were talking about the Russian constitution and 
almost like not even mattering in a way. It doesn't. Just because like they say they do one thing, but in reality they don't actually do that. And there's nothing really a Russian opposition could do to that because the Russian authorities are obviously in power. Mm -hmm. It can use the constitution to perhaps bend to their will, I guess, if that makes sense, as I was saying yeah. earlier. I wonder how much the average Joe in Russia, like, I wonder how much they know what the constitution actually says, you know? Yeah, because I was uh, researching this earlier, but 60% of media outlets are owned by the government. So I'm wondering how much, like, do they know about what exactly their country is going through and how much their constitution will actually apply to them? I think it's a very interesting thing that we could probably cover hours on. But I think something just to leave it there with is the fact that the Russian uh Russians on freedom of speech through perhaps social media are very capable of finding ways to get it done, whether that's through the Russian constitution or online, or like you were saying, paying someone, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, Russians it, are very capable people. And social sure. media has a humongous influence on people. Like I think we underestimate it a little bit. Yeah, I think so too. Well, that's all for today. Thank you for listening, and thank you for listening to all of our episodes. I'm Noah Coker, your favorite podcaster. <laughs> and I'm Rihanna Thomas. Have a great day. This has been In the Shadow of the Kremlin, a podcast by K-State Poli-Sci students. We'd like to thank both our hosts and many guests for this segment, as well as our listeners. We'll see you for the next installment.